Good morning. First Corinthians chapter 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, 
for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus, it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass a saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is a law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we open the word that you would give us ears to hear, challenge our hearts. Lord, in every believer, stir us up again 
to desire to hear from you well done. That you might direct the path of our feet today and every day. That we might be a people that's overflowing, abounding in the work of the Lord. Lord, I pray that I might be spirit-filled this morning and that each one of us might be spirit-filled as listeners, Lord, that we would be obedient hearers. In Jesus' name, amen. The message is entitled, How Firm a Foundation. There is a hymn that was written in 1787 by George Keith. He was son-in-law to Dr. John Gill, who was the pastor of New Park Street Chapel. That was what was the, the church was called before Charles Spurgeon went there, and eventually it became known as the Metropolitan Tabernacle. He wrote this song, and good hymns, good Christian music, are good because they give us doctrine. And doctrine is the foundation of, for which we build our lives, which we rest upon. The first verse says, How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he's already said? Where? In the word of God. To you who for refuge to Jesus has fled. The last verse says, The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to take, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. What we need in our lives is foundation. Jesus in the great Sermon on the Mount comes to chapter 7 as he begins to wrap the sermon up. And he says, a wise man goes out and he digs down to the rock, and then he builds his house on a foundation. The foolish man goes out, and he doesn't want to waste time or money on a foundation, so he just builds his house on the sand. And the storms come. They live in the same neighborhood. And the winds beat upon the wise man's house, and it stands because it has a foundation. The foolish man's house is crushed because it has no foundation. God wants us in our life to build our lives on the foundation of the Word of God. It's interesting how the Holy Spirit lays this out. He begins with the supernatural salvation that we have in chapter 1 of this great letter, 1 Corinthians. He gives them their hopes, the supernatural wisdom that we all have available to us if we'll just avail ourselves of it. Then he begins to deal with their problems, their sin. Then he comes to chapter 11 and their selfishness and self-centeredness has led to their vanity and emptiness in worship. And he reinstitutes the Lord's table. And he says, what you're doing is not the Lord's table. And he reinstitutes that. Then he comes to 12 and he begins to talk about the gifts that God has given for every church to minister to ourselves the gifts were given that we might minister to one another. So like he wrote to the Ephesians, we all come to the maturity, the measure, the stature of Jesus Christ. No longer ta tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but grown up to be like Jesus, each one. 
And Pastor Grafe preached a great message from 1 Corinthians 12 about our opportunity to use our gifts. That's where joy is found. That's where maturity is found. It's not just me going off by myself and living on a mountain and getting a bunch of knowledge. In 1 Corinthians 8, he said, knowledge not ministered soon turns to pride. Knowledge puffs up. But he leaves off talking about giftedness because they were a mess in that church. And he comes to the last verse of chapter 12 and he says, I want to show you a more excellent way. And he begins to unfold what agape love, self-sacrificing love works out, works out to be and what it looks like. And he says, that's what we're all called to. And then he comes to chapter 14 and he lays out the order for worship. Now the last verse in chapter, th- chapter 13 says this, now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Why? Because it's eternal. We're never going to be without the love of God. But we still need faith and hope. So he comes to chapter 15 and he again reminds them of the gospel. Very simply, he said, I remind you of the gospel that Jesus Christ died for our sins. He went on purpose to the cross. Purposefully, he laid his life down. He was buried, and on the third day he rose again, was witnessed by the apostles and by 500 brethren at one time, and then he ascended to be back with the Father. So as been quoted to us, since it's a reality, why are some of you acting like it's not important about the resurrection? Some of you have been teaching that it didn't happen. If the resurrection didn't happen, then we're speaking falsely, and we are of all people most miserable. There's no hope. There's no reason to go to church if there's no resurrection. There's no reason for missionaries if there's no resurrection. There's no reason to live if there's no resurrection. But Paul says, no, no, there is a resurrection. That's why he risks his life. Because it's not just about this life. And yet even in our own Christian lives, sometimes we act like it is. We labor and we strive and we save because of what we need right here. And Jesus said in the parables to his disciples, Have you ever considered the lilies of the field? They don't toil. They don't spin on a spinning wheel. And God has clothed them more gloriously even than Solomon in his best clothes. And they just die and get thrown in the fire. Don't you think you're worth a little bit more than they are? Have you ever thought about the birds of the air? They don't harvest and gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father knows when one of them falls. He feeds the sparrows. And Jesus said, why are you laboring after that? That's what unsaved people labor for. Are you supposed to work? Of course you're supposed to work. But it's not our main focus. Our main focus is ministry. And what a peace and a joy it is when we finally come to that place. We don't have to labor and worry and strive anymore. But as it says in Psalm 46.10, cease striving and know that I am God. What is this great foundation? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ paid the penalty of your sins. 
He laid his life down willingly, and then he rose up from the dead again, conquering death and sin. Now, we're not going to go through the whole chapter, but if you follow me down to verse 54, remember, he's explained, listen, you're not going to get the exact same body back. You're going to get a new body back. When you put a seed in the ground, you don't just get a seed back. You get a whole stalk. And normally what is planted is not as beautiful as what comes forth when it grows. So he said, it's going to be different. Not only that, all of you may not die. And he gave them some new information. That's what information the word does for a believer. That's what knowledge does. It establishes us and it gives us motivation, strength, and hope for the future. I don't think any of us want to get to heaven and find that we have wasted our lives. We want to waste our time. You don't have to live very long before you know that time goes very quickly. It's passing quickly. There's an old saying, only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. But it's easy to get discouraged when we lose sight of eternity. We lose sight of what we're doing here and that there's a real hope beyond. Discouragements come. Money is lost, treasure is gone, and we lose hope. When as a believer, one thing hasn't changed. That's the great possession we have in Jesus Christ and our eternal life. He says, listen, when this perishable, this seed that's going to fall on the ground and die, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he calls it this tent. When this tent gets folded up, we have a new body in heaven waiting for us. When this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. You know, there are some trials that come along that you may think, that I may think, wow, it just can't get any worse than this. And so in my mind, sometimes I say, well, what's the worst thing that could happen in this situation? If, if I don't get some help, if, if so-and-so doesn't get rescued, what's the worst thing that could happen? I say, well... I guess death. Well, guess what? Because we have the victory, that's not the worst thing that can happen. The worst thing that can happen is you lose sight of this great foundation stone of truth and get discouraged and lose focus and stop ministering. He said, we have this victory. What we fail to realize as believers is the great beyond the great glory that's waiting for us. Paul said in Romans, when I think about all the suffering that's here, it cannot be compared to the greater weight of glory that we're going to enjoy one day. Can't compare it. He said, one day we're going to step into victory. That's what knowledge from the word of God does. It bears witness with our spirit. And as a believer, we just don't say, well, whatever. That's what Christians say. One of our brothers this week was on his job just talking, and he got a chance to just share because talking about death, somebody said, well, this could happen and that could happen. The guy said, well, I'm not. I'm, our brother said, well, we, I don't have to worry about that. What do you mean? 
I know where I'm going. I know the Lord. The guy kind of backed off, looked at him, thought that was really strange. Not to be worried about death? No. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he said, listen, I don't want you to worry about people, the loved ones that have died that know the Lord. Because when Jesus comes back, he's going to bring them with him. I want you to comfort one another with these words. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he said, when this body dies, when you are absent from this body, you wake up present with the Lord. Then he says, having this courage. Why? Because that kind of information gives us courage about this life. And we don't want to waste it. Jesus' desire for us in John chapter 15 was that we be fruitful. God's desire is that we be very fruitful in our lives. God didn't save you to lay around the premises until you go to heaven. And I don't teach this in order to make you feel guilty. If you're convicted about not doing much, that's the Holy Spirit. But it's not to make you feel bad. Listen, if you're not serving the Lord with all your might, you're missing out on joy. Because that's what he created you for. For ministry, for worship. He goes on to say, death, where's your victory? This victory that he's won for us gives us the attitude that Paul said, hey, listen, death, where's your victory? Paul said in the other epistles, listen, if I had my way, I'd just go be with the Lord because that's far better but I still have ministry to do, and that's necessary. So while he would rather go to be with the Lord, he said, I'm caught between these two poles. I want to be with the Lord, but I want you to get everything you're supposed to have so that when you stand before the Lord, you can hear well done also. That's the tension in lives, in the lives of believers, not fear of death, but anticipation of an eternity with God that never ends. An eternity of purpose and reward. So Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It's like you're here and then you're there. There's no soul sleep. There's no kind of wandering through the mists of outer space for a while. You close your eyes here, you open it up there. Paul said there's nothing to be feared. That's why he kind of mocks. He says, hey, death, what happened to your sting? Hey, grave, where's all your fear? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's our victory for every single day if we will avail ourselves of it. So he lays out this great doctrine of the resurrection, it's truth. That it is this great bulwark, this great stone of foundation. And then he says to us, therefore, seeing that all these things are yours. He said the same kind of thing when he's writing the book of Romans. He wrote 11 chapters, the great doctrine of salvation. Then he comes at 12 and he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, you see this great truth. That we have salvation because of Christ's finished work on the cross. He offers it to you by faith. All you have to do is receive it. Romans 10, 9 and 10. He comes to 12 and he says, now listen. Your reaction, having received Christ, ought to be to present your bodies a living sacrifice. 
holy, acceptable to God. This is your reasonable service of worship. Don't be conformed to this world. That's what the Corinthians were doing. They received salvation and wanted to go back to the world. Maybe that's the gospel you're given. Hey, listen, Jesus wants to add to your life so you can go to heaven when you die. That's not the gospel message. The gospel message was, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Christ. And whoever tries to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for Jesus' sake and the gospel will find it. He says, therefore, verse 58, therefore, because of Christ's great victory that's put into your hands, that to be asked for the bodies to be present with God, and the accountability that one day you're going to give an account before him, not at the great white throne judgment, but at the Bema judgment, where there's awards given for faithfulness, you'll give an account. Even though it's not the judgment of wrath, Paul still said in 2 Corinthians 5, knowing therefore, brethren, the terror of the Lord, we do our job. We persuade men. Because what a sad thing to stand before the Lord with nothing to give back for all that he's given to us. We don't labor because we're earning our salvation. No, no, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But the next verse is, But we are his creation in Christ Jesus. He saved us, what? Unto good works. So Paul says, Seeing this great bulk of doctrine, this great foundation for life, Therefore, beloved brethren, be steadfast and immovable. Steadfast is the idea of being focused. Immovable is a little stronger word. That was Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus, that they be rooted and grounded in love. If we are rooted and grounded in the love of Christ Jesus, which is wrapped up in the gospel and the doctrine of the resurrection then we'll see happen things that we cannot imagine, more than we can ask or think if we are available. But it starts with that rock-solid faith that this is not the end. Be steadfast, immovable. Then he says, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That idea of abounding is the word that's used in Ephesians 1, 7, and 8. The word that is used of God's lavishing on us the riches of his grace. Because God so abundantly has outdone himself for us who deserve nothing. He said, that ought to be our response in ministry. Here's the question. What would it look like if you and I were always abounding in the work of the Lord? What does that look like? I don't know what it looks like for you. You have, because of your personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you have the responsibility, the opportunity to go to him and say, God, today I am available. That's what it is. It's simply being available. To go, to speak, to give, to serve where he wants you to, 
today. You can't do anything about tomorrow. You can't do anything about yesterday. Today, you can be found faithful. It starts one day at a time. So many people are worried about the future, how to prepare for the future. You prepare for the future as a believer by being faithful today. What has God put in your hand today? It's not being somebody else. God's called you on purpose. He saved you on purpose. He's gifted you on purpose for you to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to fulfill the purposes he has for your life. He wants you to be equipped. He wants you to be available. And then here he says, I want you to be abounding, not in your work, but in the work of the Lord. Why? Because that's not in vain. How many believers in America, they show up, they're kind of like spectators. They've gotten real good at judging what everybody else should be doing. And, oh, I've got it right, but my real job is to judge what everybody else is doing. In Romans 14, Paul gives some instruction. He said, who are you to judge another man's servant? To his own master, he will stand or fall and stand he will because God is able to make him stand. The best thing you can do is be example in your own self by being an overachiever in the work of the Lord. What has God called you to do? I don't know. That's for you to find out. And that's the great joy. When you find that place of ministry, of service in the body, of ministering to where God wants you to minister, you're going to begin to have the attitude, all this in heaven too. Money won't matter. Some of the greatest saints have died penniless. Why? Because they left it all on the field of battle. Left it all. There's nothing wrong with saving or having a retirement, but how are you using the retirement? John Piper said, God didn't save you and give you a retirement so you could go pick up seashells on the seashore. Just play golf at the old people's village down in Florida. Saved you for a purpose. And God may have given you that opportunity of retirement that you might give your whole life to ministry. Take all that experience you gave by working to try to turn around and minister and have something you'd never even imagined before. That's joy. As much as you know, your labor is not in vain. And oh, to stand before the Lord one day and have him say, well done. You did what I called you to do. You fulfilled the purposes for which, you, which I saved you. Well done. And then to have those crowns of faithfulness, because God doesn't look at success the way we do, even as Christians. In the Christian world, we look at success and how big are the buildings of the church, how many people attend. God doesn't look that way. There have been faithful men and women that have been a part of great works because of their faithfulness. But it's their faithfulness that will be rewarded. Not the wood, hay, stubble, but the gold, silver, precious stone. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Solomon came to the end of his life, the wisest man that ever lived until Jesus came. God gave him all this wisdom, and what did he do? He threw it all away and went after the world. And the taste in his mouth at the end of his life was vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And he said, I went and experimented for the rest of you people who couldn't afford it. 
And I tried all the sin out. I tried all the world out. And what I find, it was empty. Comes the end of his life in Ecclesiastes. And he says this. Know God and fear his commandments. Obey God. That's it. For this is the whole duty of man. He had to go through all that debauchery to come back where God had started him at. Your labor will not end be in vain if you're walking with the Lord. And that just starts simply with you telling the Lord, I am available today, Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. Oh, we thank you that you loved us. You've set us free from sin. And you've set us free that we might be your servant. That's our highest calling in life, to serve you. And Lord, we serve you by loving one another and serving one another. You've said that the mark that sets us apart is that we love one another. Lord, I pray that you stir us up to this highest calling to hear from you well done. Not because we know more or because we have more things of this world, but Lord, simply that we were faithful stewards of what you put in our hands. Those who gather around the table today, Lord, and we remember that you didn't think being God was something to be grasped after, but you humbled yourself even to death on the cross. And you've commanded that we remember that, that our lives as your children are be about the gospel. Lord, I pray that as we partake of the bread and the cup today, that would impact our lives that we would remember that everything we are, everything we have is because of you, Lord Jesus. And we'll give you all the glory. Amen.